Hello, and welcome to episode 443 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I am one of the co-founders here at ETR, and we are coming off of a the edge still exists kind of week. Sometimes in life, it's the small things, you know? Ah, oh, Adam, DFS is too tough now. Adam, everyone is too sharp. Hold on a second, brother man. Slate locks at 1 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. Saquon Barkley is 43% owned. 43% on a slate where I thought at least seven running backs were good enough for cash and plenty more for tournaments. And yes, of course, I thought Saquon Barkley was a great play. I played him in cash, of course. But to run into that kind of ownership, 43% on Saquon Barkley, with the systemic fragility of Giants, offense and Saquon Barkley's history of boom bust kind of running. I hope, I hope that in hindsight, everyone recognizes why playing any expensive-ish running back at 43% is going to be shaky. But honestly, the Barkley thing is bad, but not nearly as jaw-dropping as the Bengals' defense ownership. We have you know our algorithm, which helps us project ownership that you see in our projection tables. The algo had the Bengals defense around 45% owned. And I actually said, we should manually override that. I said, people are too sharp now. They know you can't play the Bengals at 20, 25, 30, 30%. So they won't be 45% owned. I mean, we did the article on winning Millie Maker Trends. I even tweeted it. Let me read what we said in the article. It said, try to never eat high ownership at defense slash special teams in DFS. The variance and unpredictability of the position is massive. The correlation between ownership and actual DST points is an almost non-existent 0.165. In other words, defensive scoring in fantasy is random. And the best way to capitalize on randomness is by leaning into it, by taking low-owned defenses. Now, I know what you're thinking. Bengals at 2,200 against Cooper Rush, it can't fail. I have to play it. It can't fail. You know, you don't. I had... Nine tournament teams this past week didn't play Bengals defense on any. And it always goes, and not that I, obviously I played Bengals defense in cash. I thought that they would do well, but it all goes back to what do you win when you win? And that's what I was saying about week one last week. You know, the chalk smashed. If you played it, did you win? Or did you get a hundredth or 50th or 500th? Did you get first when the chalk smashed and you played it? Did you get top three? You know, when you're right, what's the reward? And so on Bengals defense at 40% in week two, okay, if they get 10 points, can I survive that? Sure. If they get 20, am I fucked? Of course. But when they get 10 or they get four as they did and I beat them, we're only losing them by a little. But if I beat them, I beat 40% of the field and I'm on my way. And that's why week two was such a GPP bro kind of week. Almost all the players who were most owned in week two main slate failed and failed in spectacular fashion. I mean, mentioned Saquon, 43%, 11.8 DK points. Bengals defense, 41%, four points. Devontae Adams, 34% dust. Javante Williams, 20%. Gibson, 20%. Judy, 18%. Albert O airballed at 10%. JT busted at 12%. Mixon only got 11 points at 16%. So by being contrarian in week one, you were drawing dead to win in tournaments. But you also likely didn't rise to the top by playing chalk. By being contrarian in week two, you put yourself in a position to just eliminate a massive, massive portion of the field who ate the chalk. And so, man, this was the week. I mean, 
this was it. We, we noted ahead of week two that Miami had the NFL's highest pass rate over expectation in week one. And we also know that Mike Kosicki has been mostly phased out of this Mike McDaniel offense. Cedric Wilson is not a target earner. We also knew that the Ravens secondary was decimated by injury. So man, to get this Tua Tagovailoa double stack with Tyreek and Waddle before anyone is really aware of what's going on. I mean, it's just pure sex. Tua was 3.5%, Waddle 6%, Tyreek 14%. The other side of the stack, Mark Andrews only 9%, Bateman only 3%. And by the way, I, I get asked a lot about ETR moving the market too much. You know, here's a good example. We were big time in on this Miami-Baltimore game, and it was still barely owned. You know, like, uh, of course, all of us at ETR, we wish that everyone who plays DFS subscribes to ETR, but they just don't, you know. Anyways, I, I'm a bit tilted because this was it. I mean, as I mentioned, this was the spot of the year. There's a really good chance that this will be my best GPP team of the year, and I didn't win. I got 10th in the big three max. That was 150K to first, and I got seventh in the smaller three max. That was 50K to first, and you know that's just not good enough. Had two with Tyreek Waddle, brought it back with Andrews. DeAndre Swift at 4% with Lions defense at 1%. New Swift would be under-owned because of the ankle, but thought the risk was worth it there. The mini correlation I had was Christian Kirk and, and Ashton Doolin in the same game, and then I had... Josh Jacobs as a one-off, leverage off the Derek Carr, Devontae Adams chalk. So I thought it was a really good team. You know, not quite good enough. So that's frustrating. One other thing on, on tournaments I wanted to mention, I just hate, hate, hate when people chalk everything up to luck or variance. I mean, you guys know me, no excuses, play like a champion. In the long run, there's no such thing as luck. However, I will concede on this point. Sometimes the combos just don't fall the right way for you. You know, I, I know Leonie mentioned this on the GPP review show on Monday. And what we mean by this is that I had plenty of Nick Chubb in week two, ton of Amon Ross St. Brown and Cup and Drake London, et cetera. But none of them happened to land on this two, a double team that I have. Like easily, instead of Doolin Kirk, I could have gone Amon Ra Dotson or something. You know, I don't know exactly what would have fit. But uh, these combos and what, which lineups they end up in, that's just part of GPP bro life. You know, not only do you have to find the right players, you have to have the right combos as well. And there is certainly some luck in that. As for cash uh, in week two, I had a decent week, won 66% of my head-to-heads. Clearly got very lucky as I would have been happy to play Trey Lance, but had the money for Derek Carr in this lineup and got a nice start at 1 p.m. So I went Derek Carr. You know, I thought Derek Carr's floor was better than Trey Lance's, but Lance's ceiling was way higher. So if I had gotten off to a bad start, or a mediocre start at 1 p.m., I probably would have gone to Lance. But the key, of course, at 1 p.m. was playing Amon Ross St. Brown. I mean, I'm not sure how much more we can say about this guy. Hopefully, all of you have him in season long. It's just so clear. I mean, two easy things on Amon Ross St. Brown. The Lions quietly have an excellent offense, and they have a well-known horrific defense. These wild shootout-type games should have been expected and should be expected to continue. And second, the way Jared Goff plays where he likes to throw the football, it's where Mon Ra is clearly his best. I mean, Goff just loves clear, loves throwing to this kid, and the Amon Ra stuff is so fun. Um, you know, got so much wrong this year, obviously. The Kyle Pitts stuff at the forefront looks really bad. We'll talk to Silva about that later today, but the Amon Ra stuff is so fun. Uh, one other interesting thing for Cash. So hopefully you guys were in Discord and reading top plays on Sunday morning. I had a source tell me that Cam Akers was going to play a lot in week two, far more than week one. You know, it's hard to know for sure 
if that was going to come to reality. But I thought it was a solid enough information to add a note into top plays. And we docked Daryl Henderson's projection and docked his spot in the top plays chart. And in cash, I tried to get off Daryl Henderson. I mean, I was never playing him in tournaments anyways, but I tried to get off him in cash. I just couldn't get to a team that paid more at running back and also kept Amon Ra. So I thought, hey, even if DeHendo only plays 50% of the snaps at 5,700 against the Falcons, it's not the end of the world. And, and maybe that was bad. You know, in hindsight, it probably was bad. But all the running backs failed in cash, so it ended up fine. Last thing before we get to the listener questions. Uh, early part of the season, it's so huge to know what to react to and what should be left alone. What's an overreaction? In, in the props market in week two, most of our bets were to week one overreactions. You know, Kelsey under seven and a half catches after he erupted week one. Lockett over three and a half after he was dust in week one. Amari Cooper over three and a half at even money after he was dust in week one, you know, some good examples there. And, and then we also got caught maybe overreacting ourselves a little bit. We had a Damian Pierce under after his really bad week one. We lost that. We had a uh, Justin Fields over after he played pretty well in week one and that lost in spectacular fashion. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard, but extending sample sizes and looking at usage is the best way to know whether we're overreacting or not, not just looking at performance. All right. I know all of you want to bet sports. You know, by the way, we've been doing the betting show on Friday nights with the King Sharp of NFL betting, Matt Davidow. It's been uh, pretty popular and pretty good, I think, which is cool. And I'm actually not saying anyone should bet sports. But if you are, and I know many of you are, you better be getting the best line every single time. It actually makes me sick to my stomach to know one of you out there is taking a plus three and a half when there's a plus four in the market or an under 34 and a half in props when there's an under 37 and a half out there. You're just torching money. So you're going to need to have money on a ton of different books. And the best part of that is on top of always getting the best line, you'll also get these absurd sign-up bonuses. It's really ridiculous. It's not going to last. All this money the books are spending on customer acquisition is just not going to last. But right now, there's so much out there. If you go to props and betting tab on ETR, and then scroll down to ETR Sportsbook bonus offers, you'll see all the bonuses by state. So take advantage of it. All right. Enough is enough. Let's get to everyone's favorite portion of the program, the listener questions. Producer Luke. Hit the theme music. All right. Appreciate all the questions as always. These were left over from week one. We're going to do eight here today. We'll need some more questions next week. So stay tuned for when I ask for those. Question one from Kiki. As a fellow hat wearer, did you choose your profession based on the ability to always wear a hat. I love the term uh, fellow hat wear. You know, it reminds me of that Curb episode where Larry gives the nod to anyone else that's driving a Prius like him. Um, but look, the crazy thing is I, I always wore hats. I, I don't really know why. I, even when I had a lot of hair, and believe me, I had a ton of hair. I know uh, some of you have probably seen that picture from Penn State where I have the really long hair. Um, so yeah, I, I always wore a hat even when I had a lot of hair. Now that I'm Ubaldo Jimenez, yeah, of course, I wish I'd grown my hair super long for longer. You know, hashtag regrets. As for choosing a profession that I can wear a hat, I mean, it's not a big deal. I'm really not opposed to getting dressed up or not wearing a hat or whatever. You know, if the Sixers brought back Sam Hinkie and they asked me to be his assistant GM, but I have to wear a suit and no hat every day, yeah, of course I'm in. And in terms of choosing a profession, I mean... Not to quote Rounders, but, you know, this stuff really chose me. I mean, I would be out here playing DFS and 
betting props. Anyways, regardless of whether there was any business stuff associated with it. So that's just kind of how it happened. So I didn't exactly choose the profession. It just kind of happened. And, and yeah, I didn't really see any reason to take off the hat. Question two from Jesse Martin. He says, how do you manage NFL season weekends with family? I think I remember, I think I remember you saying in the past that you take all of Saturday off. Is that still the case? So I'm doing something ETR related or something for playing fantasy or betting or whatever, almost 24 seven, which is great. Of course, like I just said, it's, it's really what I love to do. The problem is I have a wife, I have two kids, you know, I, who desperately need me. I have friends, you know, somehow there just aren't enough hours in the day, in the week to really do everything. That's just always going to be a fact. So I know a lot of people build lineups on Saturdays. I really try to completely unplug on Saturdays. It's an off day for the NFL. And I don't even like to build lineups until all the information is available anyways. What's the point? We need the Schefter bombs. We need other information. We need the latest weather. And so what I do is unplug Saturday and then get up real, real early Sunday around 4, 4.30, 4.45 a.m. Mountain time on Sunday it gives me around six hours before lock to get my team set, digest all the info, do the last minute live stream with Silva, double check our projections and ownership, set the season long lineups, survivor picks, pick them pools. You know, it's great. The six hours goes by so fast. Also, I, you know, routine, it just creates structure with my family. You know, it's not like, hey, by the way, like I'm not like showing up Saturday morning being there Sunday morning, be like, hey, by the way, I'm going to be completely MIA Sunday. You know, it, it's known it's, it's 17. Well, I guess 18 now Sundays per year I'm working, you know, everybody knows and everybody gets it. So, so that works for me, maybe not for everyone, but, but that works for me. Question three from Jake Mason. He says, could you provide us with a Jerry update? Yeah. Thanks for asking Jake. I know I haven't talked a lot about Jerry lately. Feel like that bit kind of ran its course and people had enough of it. For those guys who don't know, Jerry is my, my dog. She's a golden doodle, but uh, she's doing well. She recently turned nine. She's not slowing down at all. She's still barking nonstop and running super fast and, and being the beautiful beast that she is. I, I think it's kind of easy to ignore or deprioritize the dog once you have kids, but I've tried to ne never let her feel that. You know, I would hope, I would never want to devastate her by thinking that she's secondary now. So we still do skin to fur before I get in the shower every day. You know, I get completely naked. She, of course, is completely naked as always. Uh, I pick her up. She drapes her paws over my shoulders and, and I press my skin, my bare skin against her fur and the bond remains strong. You know, it's crazy. I know people who don't have, who have, I know people who don't have dogs don't really get it, but Jerry's been through so much with us. We've had really low lows like uh, any other family. She's just, always there with the same demeanor. Uh, literally, all she wants is, is life. All she wants in life is love from us and to be petted. Like, that's it. You know, you can't really find that unrelenting, never distracted loyalty anywhere else. It's really incredible. So shout out to dogs. Question four from Yetz. He says, how do you personally determine if you have an edge in something? What are the factors slash variables that should give someone confidence that their results on a small sample size thing like DFS, best ball, et cetera, are the result of an edge versus variance? Good question. Tough question. Uh, Yetz correctly points out how much variance there is in things like DFS, best ball, poker. That's especially true in tournaments and massively true in large field tournaments 
where it's so ridiculously top heavy. I think in those kind of formats, in those uh, tournaments, in those large field tournaments, digesting at what rate your lineups are finishing in the top 1% of all lineups is a good evaluation tactic that Dink has talked about before. In other words, like how many shots on goal are you getting? If it's significantly above what an average player is getting, you know, significantly above expectation, then eventually you should break through and win on a big enough sample. I also think that extending your sample is a good way to know if you have an edge. Like, let's say you play DFS cash. Well, you can't tell a ton. You can tell some, but you, can, you can't tell a ton by just 18 main slate cash lineups. You know, you can tell a little, but not the whole story. But what if you play cash for every slate for a full NFL season, 1 p.m. only slate, 4 p.m. only, all the two and three game slates, all the primetime slates, everything. And then let's say you add in NBA cash. Well, and you play that every day. Well, you know, you have a really big sample then. And I think that's notable and you can take something from that. One more thing that I do is look at what my opponents did. Can I identify mistakes clearly? You know, I was looking through my high stakes head-to-heads from this past week, and I found one where my opponent played Rex Burkhead. You know, clear error. If you look through the tournaments and you see that Bengals D is 41% owned, you know, clear error. I already talked about that. Of course, the problem here is that game conditions are always changing. A good example, I think, is in poker. When I first started playing this uh, 10-10 game, you know, when Parks first opened outside Philly, and they opened with this 10-10 no-limit game. When I, when I first started playing it, I had this really massive win rate for a pretty big sample, a few years worth. Then some of the fish got frustrated and quit. Some people got better. More good players entered the game. You know, I didn't get better. And at that point, my previous win rate was irrelevant. You know, I, I was winning super small after a while. And so that can be hard to evaluate. You know, all this stuff, you have to really just pay attention for sure and, and see what you can find. Question five from uh, FedSpeak, Andy, who came to the uh, ETR meetup in Denver, which was cool. FedSpeak said, what did you do with the sack of golf balls I left in your backyard? Yeah, this is an easy one. I I threw it in the fire uh, after you left. The balls, the golf glove, the tees, I just, you know, burned it all. You know, it's enough already uh, with the golf freaks. Question six from Jeff Edelstein, great friend of the show, edited my book, of course, the very uh, influential and pivotal book, Skin to Fur. Uh, anyways, Jeff asked, public bathroom stall, seat is down and covered in pee. Obviously, you're not going to pick it up. Obviously, you're going to try to land all your pee in the bowl without touching the seat like it's an Olympic sport. What percent success rate should we have? 100% is tough, especially with end shaking. See, I- I'm all for being a good person, you know, for leaving something just as it was before I came, uh, for paying it forward to some degree, but not when it comes to toilets. If there's pee all over the bowl when I come into a toilet, obviously there's no shot I'm touching the seat. You'd have to be an actual psychopath to do that. But if the seat is already ravaged by pee, I really don't care about getting more pee on the seat. It's already tainted. So yeah, I'm obviously aiming for the water, but I'm not really going to stress about it too much. I think the bigger issue in this spot is when you go into a toilet and you have to defecate and there's pee all over the seat and you can't sit anywhere. At that point, you know, I just turn around and go home. That's easy game. Question seven from Jack Burkhart. Jack says, my wife and I don't have the same hobbies, but we listen to our podcast together on road trips so we can still connect. I thought she might think the solo pod is funny, and she does, but now she started calling me a spreadsheet virgin. How do I get back up from this? It's really crazy, Jack. Uh, A ton of people have told me they listen to the solo pod with their significant other. And by a ton, I mean roughly 25 people. It's still wild to me, though, that 
people sit down with their girlfriend, their wife, or guma, whatever, and listen to this. Like, I always thought that if I got famous or, or pseudo-famous, I'd have women in my DMs all the time, you know, propositioning me. But no, no, it's all dudes. It's dudes trying to do shrooms. It's dudes with start sick questions. It's dudes telling me how disgusting I am. I need to put on a hat, you know, which is cool. Believe me, it's cool. But imagine a day in Portnoy's DMs or in Pete Davidson's DMs. I mean, I guarantee you, it's not dudes sending you videos of Trey Lance with strippers. It's not dudes sending you Hunter Biden's cock, you know, or start sick questions. But anyways, uh, back to Jack's question. I think your significant other understanding what a spreadsheet version is, understanding why it might be funny and being willing to call you that, that sounds like a good partner, you know? So shout out to you. Congrats on the sex. All right, question eight. Last question we're going to do today comes from Liam, uh, Best Ball Mania 2 champ, Liam. He says, what's the most money you've lost on a bit? Yeah, that's an easy one. It's the 6, 12, 18, 24 challenge that Bales did a few years ago. I I knew he could do it, or I knew he was likely to be able to do it, but really thought that it would be funny and fun to watch him go through it. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's a simple challenge. He had 24 hours to do miles, masturbations, drink beers, eat donuts. You assign a number to each. He did six-mile run. He had to do it under 66 minutes, 12 jerks to completion, no dry coming, 18 beers, and 24 donuts. And he did it, you know, relatively easily. I think I lost five or six K, but, but honestly, it was so folks, it was so fun. It was so, so, so funny. Such a great memory. I'll be talking about this for the rest of my life. I mean, anytime this comes up, people just love to talk about it. So certainly worth it. Um, I did do two sets of those 10 underdog drafts at the same time last month. And that only cost 500, but those teams are, are, I think drawing pretty close to dead. I mean, I think they'll advance at a high rate because I was pretty confident in our rankings and I got good players, but the correlation and structure stuff is all messed up because I was doing 10 at a time. But that was also good fun. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I can get lucky. But, oh, I was actually looking through those 20 underdog teams that I drafted at the same time. The best one has 304 points, which, you know, isn't a ton, but I open it up and it only has one quarterback. You know, it's just so bad. Just Joe Burrow only. I, I must have just timed out a bunch or, not realize I only had one quarterback. So yeah, um, that team is probably torched, but all in good fun. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of the Solo Pod. I'll be back later today with Silva for the Team by Team Pods, where we will recap everything we saw in week two and start looking to week three. Be sure you're subscribed on YouTube and or anywhere you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss that going forward. For Jerry, for Bruce Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm-hmm.